Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Alex. And this is Connor. Welcome to the Sales Engineering Podcast. Alex and I are really excited to bring on our first guest, Kat DeYoung, a sales engineering manager at Snowflake. Her team works with some of the largest accounts in the world. And this is a really great conversation where we dive deeper into the core qualities of a great SE. We also talk about what does she look for when she's interviewing candidates and how you can actually grow and up-level your core sales engineering skill sets. If you incorporate and build some of these skill sets into your professional life, there's without a doubt, you will be successful. Kat's truly an amazing individual in the professional world. Outside of work, she's also an avid runner. I'm pretty sure she mentioned her Chicago marathon time was sub three hours. So get ready to learn from an incredible sales engineering leader at one of the world's most successful startups. Welcome to the edge of sales engineering. So Kat, tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you're about. Yeah, awesome. It's great to talk with you again, Connor. Um, so my name is Kat DeYoung. I run a team of sales engineers in the Bay Area at Snowflake. Um, so what my team is mostly responsible for is it's for selling into some of the largest companies in the world. So we have a team that's mostly focused on named accounts. So everything from Adobe, EA, Cisco, and those are the ones that we can talk about. And there's plenty that we can't talk about like it normally is in that major enterprise sales, but it's been it's been an exciting journey. I've been um, in the Bay Area now for almost nine years. I sort of came out here right after I graduated from school. And ever since then, it's been sort of a whirlwind of going through multiple companies since being out here, learning how much I love data and also learning how much I love working with customers. And that's sort of what's brought me into becoming a sales engineer and a leader of sales engineers. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And Snowflake is one of the world's fastest growing enterprise applications. You just raised a funding round of $479 million with a valuation of $12.4 billion. You wrapped up 2019 fiscal year with 174% year-over-year growth. Very few companies ever reached this status. Tell us a bit about Snowflake and what do you think has led to the success of the team at Snowflake? Yeah, I mean, it's been, I've, I joined Snowflake in April of last year. And since I've joined, it's been an absolutely crazy ride. I think my first week I was there, we had a new CEO. Um, and it, But ever since then, it's been absolutely amazing. I think French done an amazing job sort of taking us from where we were almost a year ago to sort of where we are today. And you're seeing a lot of the changes that he's had and sort of the growth that that we've been able to accomplish since then. But honestly, I think one of the main reasons why Snowflake has been so successful is um, when our founders actually built the platform, they built it because they knew that there was a problem that they were trying to solve. And the problem they were trying to solve was everything around sort of the way data warehousing was before and the limitations that people saw when you actually sort of used what were quote unquote cloud data warehouses at the time. And I think what mostly they were is they just ported on-prem technologies into the cloud and they weren't actually taking advantage of all of the flexibility, the scalability, the performance that you could get from the cloud. So when our founders sort of built Snowflake from the ground up, they really took advantage of all of that. And the performance that we were able to get out of it just sort of blew everyone out of the water in comparison. Um, so I think part of it just comes down from the way that our founders sort of approached the problem and really thought about it differently. And I think ever since then, it's been just listening to our customers. And ever since we brought on our first couple of customers, Snowflake's been a customer first organization. 
And I think that makes a big difference. And I think the sales engineering team helps with a lot of that because the main goal is if we won't, didn't have our customers, we wouldn't be successful. So we need those customers that love Snowflake to be our advocates, to continue buying, to, to be references for everyone else. And it sort of created this sort of snowball effect on top of that that sort of made us the company that we are today. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And, and another thing I want to call out that I think is pretty amazing about Snowflake's rapid growth is you're not competing against just any other company. I know. You're competing against Google, Amazon, and, and some of the biggest, uh, you know, data warehousing solutions out there. And you're, you know, growing and, and winning a lot of these deals. So that, I think, speaks to a lot of the things you just touched on, uh, just solving the prob problem a little differently and really listening to your customers. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, I will admit it's scary going up against these large organizations. I think for any, for any startup or any company that's out there, knowing that Amazon and Google and Microsoft are your three biggest competitors would be scary for everyone. But at the same time, it's also amazing validation that what we've built is incredibly good and that they even view us as a threat and as competition. So it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of awesome as validation that what we've built is, is working very well for our customers. Yeah, no, that's, that's really great to hear. Switching gears a little bit, you know, you, you touched on this a little bit in your intro with how long you've lived here in the Bay Area, but tell us a bit about your path to the SE role. It's one of my favorite questions anytime I talk to an SE yeah. because it's a role that I never knew existed until I knew it existed in technology in a SaaS company. So how, what was your transition and path like to, to SE individual contributor and then into uh, management? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I think um, one thing that I saw at SKO this year when we brought everyone together into Vegas, um, one of the things that they gave out in sort of our welcome packet is a book of, I want to be a, like a salesperson when I grow up, which is kind of awesome because when you think about it as a kid, sales, sales engineer, it's not something that people sort of aspire to be. Um, so it was kind of cute to see um, just sort of bringing the concept of what it is to be in sales sort of earlier on to, to people as they're, as they're growing up, which is, which is cool. Mm -hmm. But um, for me, honestly, I, I started out as a consultant. So I went to school at Cornell. I have a computer engineering degree from there. Um, and I enjoyed a lot of stuff when it came to programming and everything else associated with that. But one of the things I enjoyed the most through a lot of my internships was being customer facing and working with customers. So my first job out of college was at a small company called Lunexa, which was eventually acquired by Teradata. But we were a BI and data warehousing, mm -hmm. um, big data consulting firm. So that's where I learned everything about sort of how to build out data warehouses, how to build out um, sort of microstrategy reports, how to do ETL, all that sort of stuff. Um, and essentially what I gained there was a lot of customer facing experience and just sort of also just my, my passion and love for data and solving mm -hmm. problems with data. After that, I moved to Good Data where I met Connor. Um, and I actually started there as a post-sales sort of implementation person. So I was a solution architect. I built out sort of end-to-end -end solutions for customers. And after a couple of years, I found out that um, I actually found sort of post-sales to be a little bit boring. Uh, I mm -hmm. felt a little bit repetitive. And to a certain extent, you weren't actually getting into the conversations early enough to sort of help shape the decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what drove me to become a sales engineer was sort of take the knowledge of the product of how to actually implement and sort of bring that one step further, one step forward. Um, so that way you can actually sort of help influence people that don't necessarily know what they want to buy or how to actually go about doing it, sort of help influencing them and sort of just moving further up in sort of the discussion, which I've, which I've enjoyed a lot. It's been, 
it's been great to sort of build that technical relationship with customers um, to go through and actually start influencing how they actually want to architect their entire solution, whether it's at Good Data or even at Snowflake as well, too. So um, when I was at Good Data, I then eventually started managing a team. I worked only with our strategic accounts. And then about a year ago, I moved to Snowflake um, and I was hired on to lead a team of sales engineers in the Bay, um, which has been it's been humbling and awesome all at the same time. I think one thing I've learned as being a manager is you're never always going to be the smartest person in the room. That's why you have a team. These the people on your team, they're going to be the, the technical experts. So it's been mm-hmm. a little bit of a learning experience for me as a manager, but it's been amazing to sort of get to see and learn from not only my team, but also what I can bring to them from the management side of things. Yeah, no, that's incredible. That's super cool. And one of the things you, you touched on during that transition is going from post-sales to, to pre-sales. And, yeah. and Connor and I have have similar transitions. And I think you, you really develop a, 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 an awareness of customer challenges because you're mm-hmm. the one implementing them and, and a lot of customer empathy, which I see is really strong, uh, successful traits as, as sales engineers. Yeah, and actually right now as I'm as I'm looking to hire, I'm not only looking at sales engineers, people that have been selling for for periods of time, but also to that consulting background, to that post-sales experience, because again, they have the hands-on experience and some of them may or may not be, maybe they're thinking about becoming an SE. So I, I've sort of expanded my own search when I've started to look for people because I know I've made that switch and there's others out there that want to make that switch as well. Definitely. Um, it's We're like, kind of shifting into talking a little bit more about some of those great qualities of an SE, which is like the main topic of the the podcast this episode. And uh, you touched a little bit about influence, which I'd love to dive deeper into, but just to level set uh, before we start digging into some of those qualities, mm-hmm. would, um, it would be helpful for the listeners just to understand a little bit more about what the sales process at Snowflake looks like, how uh, Snowflake is actually leveraging sales engineers today, since it's a little bit different potentially from company to company. And then we yeah. can dive into some of those great qualities of an SE. Yeah, no, that's a, that's great. Um, and even from my selling experience at uh, Good Data versus uh, Snowflake, the way sales engineers use is, is drastically different. So for us at Snowflake, um, I think sales engineers, they really sort of own the technical relationship of a customer from the moment an opportunity is qualified through their entire life cycle at Snowflake. So unlike some companies where sometimes there's a handoff after the sale has happened, and SE typically stays with them through the entire period. Uh, we do still have a professional services team and they do a great job at doing our implementations and getting our customers up and running. But the SEs, they've, they've built that relationship with people as they go through. So they, they continue to stay with them. And especially in the accounts that we're working with, we're constantly trying to find new use cases and new ways to, to sort of bring Snowflake on to new business units as we go there. Um, but if I take a sort of a step back and sort of when I think about the overall sales process, um, the way SEs are really being used is in sort of a couple of different categories. So the first is discovery. I think one of the best, the, what makes a great SE is the ability to learn as much information about a customer. And we spend a lot of time doing discovery with our customers, sort of understanding their current pains, what their current solution looks like, and really starting to uncover a lot of that. And the main goal there is for the SEs to 
be able to build out what that current state looks like and also what is that desired future state so where does snowflake fit into the picture um how how are we going to be able to make their lives better by integrating snowflake in sort of building out that and sort of starting to build those technical champions um from there there's almost always a proof of value i don't think we're big enough yet um to be able to just have people buy purely off of our name, especially in some of these big accounts we're going to. I hope that at some point we will be, but we're not there yet. So there's always a proof of value that happens, whether it's a POC um, where we're loading in customers' data, running an example workload that they have on their existing system, and just uh, throwing tons of compute at it, um, running uh, benchmark tests based off of what user concurrency might look like, and doing all of that type of stuff. Um, but for some of these customers as well, they don't need to go to that level of testing. So sometimes we're doing custom demos. So um, myself and one of the other managers leads our initiative to build out sort of demo central inside of Snowflake. So what are the industry specific demos that can be used to help sort of expedite a sale without having to go through a proof of concept? Um, and then there's always customer references, just demos in general. So there's a lot of different ways that our SD sort of prove out the value of Snowflake. Um, to sort of help get them the technical one that they need to hopefully then have the deal sign afterwards. Um, and then after that, there's still SEs are still somewhat involved in onboarding. So just making sure that Snowflake customers actually consume the credits that they buy. So helping unblock anything that might be there, helping be that liaison between sort of the customer and product. And then the main goal is to just keep finding new people and new new potential end users, new business units that want to bring on new workloads onto the Snowflake environment. So our, as a whole, the entire job of the SC team is to enable our customers to be data driven and all of these different parts are sort of ways to help that. Very interesting. Yeah, the distinction that SEs at Snowflake actually continue on uh, post-sale mm -hmm. as well is is super interesting and super unique because at Good Data, um, just being there as well and working there as well, yeah. there was that pretty pretty uh, uh, firm like I guess handoff from pre-sales to post-sales, yeah. and so uh, I could definitely see how having that customer first culture where you're actually working with your customer not only through the close of the deal but also into implementation onboarding to ensure that they're successful probably sets a different tone or stage um, for, for customer success. So that's awesome. It, it does. And I think part of that, I think part of that's just the legacy of the company as well, too. I think we didn't have a professional services team until maybe a year or maybe two years ago. So sales engineers, they, they were everything. They, they, they wore as many hats as you could possibly imagine an SE would wear. So I think that's part of sort of where some of that fits, but and I think what the, the main thing is with these major accounts, you learn so much through that initial sales process that um, being able to keep that knowledge and keep that technical champion and everything that you've built in the relationship wise just makes those future sales into new departments a lot easier. So switching gears yeah. to the core of today's episode, we want to talk about qualities of, of a great sales engineer or solutions engineer, solutions consultant. Uh, we wear many different titles. But specifically, yeah. we're talking about customer-facing technical engineers as part of the pre-sales process. So yeah. in your own words or from your perspective, mm. what makes a great SE? Oh, it's interesting because I, I have to explain this to people who have never been an SE before. And it, there's a lot of different parts of it. I think the first part of it is 
they have to truly love technology and they have to truly love and want to learn about the product that they're going to sell. I think what make one of the ways an SC can be amazing is they have to believe in the product and truly mm-hmm. be an advocate to it. So I think loving technology is one. Um, I think another big one is they have to be inquisitive. Um, they want mm-hmm. to continue to learn both from a technology standpoint, but also to learn as much as possible from the customer. Uh, they want to they want to learn as much. They want to be able to help them as much as possible. So that sort of inquisitive mindset, I think, helps a lot. Um, I think another big thing uh, comes down to, I mean, you can be great at technology and you could be very inquisitive, but if you're not a social person, this honestly isn't the right role for you. I mean, you're, you're going to be in front of customers all the time, mm-hmm. whether it's at a whiteboard or just demoing something or just like mm-hmm. sitting next to them and sort of walking them through something. You need to be someone that is willing to be interacting with other people, social, and wanting to sort of work with others. Um, And I think another key one that I've seen is they need to be able to challenge people. Um, Mm -hmm. I think one thing, and I've noticed this the most at Snowflake actually, is um, we're replacing legacy on-prem systems that people have been using for the past 20 to 30 years. Um, It's hard to change people's mind that the way that they were doing things is no longer the way that they should be doing things. So as an SC, you need to be willing to I'll not be confrontational because that's not what we're looking right, for, but you need right. to be willing to challenge someone's sort of current beliefs and really help them believe that the, that the new way of doing things is the right way of doing things. And there's a right way to do that. There's a, uh, but I think being able to be confident in challenging someone is, is, is important. Um, and honestly, I think the last one is, is they need to be trustworthy and SD needs to be trustworthy. I think um, one, the way that SEs can become sort of really good SEs and great SEs is they build that trust with their prospects and with their mm-hmm. customers. And they have to do that through a number of different actions, whether it's admitting to mistakes or mm-hmm. just being honest about what the roadmap looks like. All of, all of these mm-hmm. little small things just sort of culminate in sort of building out the trust with your customers. And if customers trust you, they're willing to take what you're saying to their bosses, to their peers, to mm-hmm. their um, sort of friends at other companies to sort of help be your advocate for you. Yeah. Well, you touched on so many good, uh, so many good points. <laughs> and, and I love that you actually went with five. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people might answer with two or three, but yeah. uh, five and, you know, re- in reality, there might even be more, more characteristics of a great as but, but I want to talk about what you just said around challenging people. Because it, and being able to to challenge people but not be confrontational, how would you yeah. measure a quality like this, or, or really any of these qualities? How do you go about measuring? Uh, these um, it's interesting, and I think from a measurement standpoint, you kind of just have to see it in person. So when I think about sort of challenging someone, it's um, I don't know necessarily know how to measure it, but I I think of it as someone who when when a customer or when anyone says something that's just completely wrong or doesn't make sense that they're willing to stand up. Uh, They're willing to say, I don't agree with this. Um, So you're, you're going a little bit past the customer is always right because in a lot of cases, the customer isn't right, but you need to guide them to the right path. Um, So I don't necessarily know if there's a a great way to sort of qualitatively measure it. But when I think about when I interview people, I, I always try to ask things about types of situations where you had to convince someone to, to change their mind. And I think that's always the biggest thing. Can someone, can you convince someone to change their mind on whatever it might be? Maybe it's a political view. Maybe it's a yeah, technology yeah, yeah, view. Yeah. It doesn't really yeah, matter yeah. what it is, but if you can't, if you can't uh, sort of, sort of like the act of persuasion, if you can't persuade someone to sort of change their mind, 
then you're, you may not be a great challenger in that sense. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But there is this inherent challenge right there that us SEs are presented with where we, we need to challenge them, but we need to be aware of a very specific way in challenging, you know, maybe with another yeah, question, respectful. maybe answer with another, because you don't want to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, deteriorate the trust or, or, or create any, any weird tension in a meeting with, with a large <clears throat> team. So maybe with another question I, or asking about what, yeah. how, tell me more about this system. How is it working? Mm -hmm. What are the challenges, you know, continuing yep. to, 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 you know, you have to be very, I don't know. It's it's a skill that you have to learn over time. With, with I the agree. But yeah, you have to use you have to use their own words like, almost against them to a certain extent. Just keep reminding them of the pains that they've already brought up, and just just keep saying like, "This is the way it was," and think about the way that it can be. And I think yeah. one thing that we also find that's interesting is we sell a lot to IT, as I think a lot of us do, but. Some people who have been there for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they may have built this system 10 years ago. And you're coming in and telling them that their system is built poorly. Like, that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is instead to, to almost complement the way that it is now. If, like, it was built for the way that it needs to be at the time. But this is the way that things can be done now so that the, you can see all of these 5, 10, 15 benefits to your business, to your, to your operations, to everything else associated with that. Yeah, and, and that's part of that storytelling element right there, being able mm -hmm. to, to paint this picture for customers. Connor, you were going to jump in and say something. Did you want to add anything to these? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love love these points. I, I've seen, I'm pretty sure I've seen Kat as well as some of like the my mentors that are SEs do some of like these very things, right? Being very conscious of the conversation, actively listening and understanding the pain points and helping to really guide the, the customer towards a different perspective or way of seeing the world or, or their challenges. And even if you do know the answer to their question, sometimes not firing it right off, right back <laughs> at them to let them know that you know the product or industry so well, but pushing back a little bit and qualifying that or asking why that's an important thing to them mm -hmm. will help exactly. us as SEs further discover and understand our customers on a, on a different level. So we talked a little bit about me measuring these these qualities and um, mm -hmm. we're we're a uh, similar snowflake actively like hiring and like interviewing right. SEs would like to know just from your managerial perspective Kat how do yeah. you go about trying to pull out some of these qualities and, and understand if a candidate that you're looking to hire actually has these qualities uh, in like a 30 minute phone screen or even on an on-site interview mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. I think one of the one of the easiest ones to always test for is like how inquisitive they are. I think um, I've actually learned this from joining Snowflake of if you get at, to the end of the interview and say, Connor, you're interviewing me and I don't have any questions to ask you. Mm. That means I'm obviously not an inquisitive person. I like yeah. I'm just like, OK, well, that's fine. And then yeah. we go on along our way. That in itself is always the biggest red flag for any interview, whether it's a phone screen and on site. If you don't have questions because every person you meet through an interview process they have a different perspective about snowflake you may think mm -hmm. that you're asking the exact same question but actually you're going to get four or five six different answers from each individual person because everyone has their own opinion of it so i think that's honestly one of the easiest ones and the the, the biggest ones that if that's the biggest red flag for us if there's no questions being asked that's it we're done we're not moving on with the conversation um yeah. which but so that one that one's a pretty easy one 
the rest of them, I think, sort of come out from just social interactions and cues. So for us, when we do our on-site interviews, uh, we always have the SE or the potential SE present something to us. Uh, it's typically a technology that they feel comfortable in. So we're, we're not having them sort of relearn something brand new because then there's stress in that as well. But instead, like what have they sold in the past or what is the technology that they've worked on for the last couple of years that feel super confident about? And um, we then check then for all of the other things, like can they pick up on cues in a room of is someone not paying attention or someone not getting it? So there's a little bit of the social aspect of it. Um, we always have a salesperson, so someone on the the, the sales side, so the non-technical side, and we always have at least one technical person in the room. So how do they balance the conversation at a level that both technical and non-technical people can understand the business value that you're trying to get about? So we use that presentation as sort of like the, the last culminating factor to test for a lot of this stuff. Um, up until that point, I mean, we have a technical screen like everyone probably does. Everyone goes through a SQL test to make sure that they're not mm -hmm. lying about their SQL skills. So, like, those are very easy to test for. I think it's the other stuff, sort of what, what really makes a good SDE. You kind of need to just pick up in as many conversations that you can have on site if possible, which for everyone it's going to be a bit more of a challenge in the next coming months. But And then just sort of seeing how they react to being challenged themselves. So, my goal is I always challenge someone in a meeting and ask them, why would you build this technology this way or anything about that? So how do they respond to challenging questions? And then are they also asking questions as they go through the entire process? Wow, that is a double, a, a double, that's a powerful question. You're not only challenging them, but challenging them on the technology. So you're testing their cu yeah. curiosity for the technology yeah. they're presenting on. How, like, did they ever lift up the hood and look under how, how was this technology actually working? So I think that's a really strong question. Yeah. When we talk, so we talked a little bit about interviewing and how we can actually like look for these types of qualities in individuals. Mm -hmm. Would love to know once you actually are working with a team and from this, again, managerial perspective, how do you actually go about develop, further developing these qualities in your teammates? I think honestly, the biggest thing is just practice. And it's spending a lot of time with your with your team. I think I'm I'm onboarding two new SEs right now um, down in Phoenix, and they're going to be running some of our major accounts down there. And what I've been doing every week is spending an hour, two hours, sometimes even an entire day with them. And it's going through sort of the technology. It's having them practice what an architecture overview looks like in the words that they are presenting it to a customer. Practicing their demos, just being that sounding board for them, so that way they can feel confident that when they go in front of potentially a customer or a prospect that they, they have their messaging down. Because I think the biggest thing for most people is they have to learn the new messaging, the new business value, the new business pro um, propositions that they have when they go into a new company. So just having people feel confident about all of those different things and providing feedback, sort of open feedback through that entire process helps. Um, and I think another great thing that we do is we have a pretty strong shadowing program that we're even looking to enhance even more this year with the major accounts. But um, I think the best way for people to learn a lot of this is to see the experts do it. So I'll partner up these new SEs with some senior SEs on my team that are already there. How do they present to a customer today? How are they running um, POC requirement gathering sessions? Just sort of putting them sort of in the shoes of this other SE without having the pressure on them of having to actually answer all of those questions, but see how someone who's been doing this for a year 
two years, three years, and handles a lot of that. So I think it's a big combination of just constant feedback, giving them shadow opportunities, and giving them a safe place to fail. Yeah, you know, that's that, that shadowing program and, and practice, I completely agree with both of those. Uh, but speaking about the shadowing, you know, the presentation is just one part of, mm -hmm. of the, the presentation. And the SE presenting that usually has received some information, some context from, from an AE yeah. or a partner, and they have to sync up. And then, you know, based on what is discussed, that's going to define how you tell the story and what you talk, what you choose to present, what you choose to talk about, how you position certain things and, and challenges. So at least in my experience, I found it much more helpful not just shadowing a demo, but syncing up in advance with, oh, with an SE to understand what is, what is happening and, and, and following the process uh, from beginning to the presentation. And then what is the follow-up that happens beyond that? Yeah, no, I agree. I think what's interesting um, for at least the deals that these SEs are sort of shadowing and being a part of now is because again, because we're only working on sort of major accounts, these deals last can last nine months, a year, longer. It just, we, you never know. It always, you never know how long these are gonna take based off of how large enterprises move. So they're not necessarily, I wish I could say that they'd be easily able to sort of see an entire life cycle of a deal from start to finish, because that would be awesome. Then you could see what the mm -hmm. entire sales process is, but we just don't have that ability right now, purely because I need these two SDs to be up and running and out there selling as quickly as possible. Um, but we're trying to get them inserted into different parts of different deals to sort of help um, with that. But I think another big thing is, is it's not just about the relationship with other SDs, but it's helping them cultivate their relationship with the account executive as well, too. So mm -hmm. making sure that they're doing the necessary prep before they go on calls, um, that they're sharing information, having them join sort of the initial discovery call. So you can have a little bit more information on sort of what's being discussed ahead of time. And they, they're not supposed to present anything. Ideally, your discovery meetings with your AEs, they're asking as many questions as possible and getting as much information from the customer, but it helps. I mean, just getting to see that part of the process and see how your AE works. And I think that's another important thing is when, when SEs do an amazing job, they also play off very well with their account executives. They're starting to foster and help build that relationship becomes incredibly valuable. Yeah, there definitely is trust between the, the AE and the SE that, that has to be built um, over time. Exactly. But there are a couple things that, you know, Going back to these qualities that make a great SE, two, two other things mm -hmm. that I would add. One is, is managing your emotions as an SE, uh, whether yeah. you're challenged by a customer or, or, or an AE counterpart is because, you know, maintaining trust and, you know, maintaining these relationships is, is, is critical. You can't yell at someone in a meeting. It doesn't work no, out as well. No, you can't. And you, you, have to, you, have to be, you have to be delicate. And then the other is growth. You have to have a growth mindset and you have to be open to feedback, whether you agree with it or disagree. I agree. If you don't have that as an SE, because you're going to receive a lot of feedback um, and, and you have to be open to it and you know, take it as a gift. No, I, I think that both of those are, they're, are great. And I think the second one's even more important. I think that's also something that you can, you can somewhat interview because at the end of a presentation, we, we go around the room and we give feedback and you can see based off of their face and based off of their reacts, how are they going to respond to you giving them feedback for the rest <laughs> of the time that you're their manager? And that's, yeah. it's, it's another, inch, like it's a, it's a small thing to pick up on, but those are, again, are things if like they don't take that feedback well, or if they make excuses for the reasons why it was like, 
that and it, like it goes back to like you need to own own your own growth and your own learning and if you're not willing to listen to others then it's not it's mm-hmm. not going to be the right fit for you um yeah. but when i think of growth as well too i mean one of the things i and it's it's a small thing but for me i'm a really i'm a really big runner i run marathons um all the time and for me i always actually try to find that aspect of people as well too like what do they do outside of work um mm-hmm. in a lot of cases those really good SDs, they have something that they're passionate about whether it's trail running that they're passionate about or they're they love gardening there's there's always something else they're always trying to continue to improve upon um to make themselves better and to just sort of ways fun ways to spend their time and i think that that's an incredibly important thing as well too because if they're not doing that in their free time uh, you can't necessarily expect them to always do that in their work time as well Mm -hmm. so you're sort of looking for that entire sort of aspect of themselves that they always want to make themselves better passion or drive yeah exactly yeah that's cool what advice would you have for uh, SEs that want to up level and become great SEs or how would you approach uh, developing SEs from from where they're at when they start to to making them mm-hmm. better smarter and, and helping them continue to grow in their career yeah no I think one great thing that I've seen happen at Snowflake since I've joined is we've actually in sort of changed our career trajectory for sales engineers. There's sort of two paths that we have right now. One is the path that I've taken, which is managing. You can be a people manager, manage teams of sales engineers, but the other path of it is sort of becoming a technology um, and thought leader in the space. So a lot of companies have the concept of a principal sales engineer and an expert sales engineer. We just introduced that and we just had our first round of promotions in February during our annual review process. But I think the biggest thing when it comes to sort of expanding your sales engineering career and sort of moving that up through the technology side of things is it's, you need to increase your sphere of influence, I think is the biggest thing. So for most sales engineers to think about how do they influence my customers? Um, so what are the things that they're doing to sort of help change their minds, help expand Snowflake inside of their customers? But for the great SCs, where I'm seeing them is they're expanding besides just their own customer base. It's their team's customers. How can you help them? Or how can you help the entire community as a whole? Uh, So a lot of it comes down to just knowledge share. So if you're an expert at Snowflake, how do you then take that knowledge and put that in everyone else's heads, whether it's fellow SDs, whether it's just random people from blogs that you're writing um, from Mm -hmm. customers to partners. I think those great SDs is they just continue to expand their sphere of influence. Um, and do different activities to sort of to do that, whether it's you're speaking at conferences, um, you're, I have one of my SEs right now, he has his own blog where he posts something new about sort of Snowflake every week. Um, and a bunch of people subscribe to it and he posts it on LinkedIn. And that's, that's sort of the type of thing that I see that sort of, that the, these people are just, they're, they're trying to create a, a brand name for themselves to a certain mm-hmm. extent and also improve the brand of Snowflake. Just you're showing how dedicated and how much you love the product and that helps other people want to love it as much too. Yeah. In our day-to-day roles, we help customers understand the value that they can attain from our product or service or solution and Mm -hmm. distinguishing good SEs and great SEs is someone that not only does that for customers, but also helps up-level either the community or other SEs with the knowledge they have. I really like that. Yeah, and I think what's super cool about this conversation, I know a lot of the things we've been talking about are very SE specific, but I feel like these things, if you did this in any type of role at any company, you would just be a rock star. Um, 
I, I don't know, maybe that's why people, uh, I, I'm sure you, you find this, uh, I've seen this internally, but SEs are really hard to hire for. Hiring- It's, it's challenging, yes. <laughs> and we have this broad list of, of 10 things that we're looking for from these candidates and you're not willing to negotiate on any of them. So it's, it's uh, yeah, if you, if you want, but the, the cool thing about being an SE, when, when we go over this, aside from maybe a handful of these, are a lot of these you can own, you know, you're in control of a lot of these. So uh, I think that's, that's a cool thing to point out. As we wrap up this, this core topic, do you think the qualities of sales engineers are going to be changing anytime in the future, over time, I, especially right now, you know, the, the tech world and, and most of the, the world is entirely remote. So yeah, do you see the skill set changing or evolving? Um, I, so I, I thought about this and I, I, I think it does. I think it's, I don't know necessarily where it's going to go, but I do agree that I think one of the biggest things right now that you see in selling as a whole in general is there's so much that's about building that relationship. Um, but a lot of times today, that relationship, especially in these big accounts, they're still being done face to face. Um, like we're not like we're doing right now on zoom, but literally sitting next to each other or like in a bar drinking, whatever it ends up being. But I think especially with what's going on right now with sort of shelter in place and no one traveling and all of that. I think we're going to have to evolve our selling motion a little bit and finding other ways to sort of build that relationship without actually sitting next to the person or being in a meeting room with the person. So I do think that's going to be one of the things that's going to change for an SD and maybe it's the medium that we communicate in. And I know even today, a lot of our SDs, they communicate with our customers over Slack. Like we have, we're in a lot of our other customer Slack channels. And I think that that's going to start evolving more, finding more ways to communicate with that, with, with our customers and our prospects without having to do it face to face. So I think, I think that that's one, I think the other as well too, is um, for us specifically, we've been able to sell a lot just based off of how good the technology is because the technology is amazing. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to have to start doing a better job and doing more up leveling of the conversation to the business value. And I think that's one thing that we're going to have to do more and more of. And I think SEs in general are going to have to do more and more of, of there's going to be so many different options that are out there. And oh, at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at the BI space, the BI space is so crowded. Um, and at, at some point it's just like, it comes down to business value and then the, the business value that you're going to be able to provide your prospects and customers, because you may do an RFP and everyone checks the exact same boxes. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be, how do you really convey that business value to them? It's going to become an important thing and drive things even more so than it does today. Yeah. Wow. Those are great answers to that question. That's a really hard question. We're asking you to predict the future. Uh, but <laughs> those were some really cool insights. Uh, focusing on business value and being able to differentiate right there and, and also how do you continue to build that personal relationship one thing that's worked for me in the past as an se is using shared slack channels like you're doing but yeah. when customers ask certain questions in one-on-one -on -one threads i offer i always offer up a zoom if i have time say hey you want to hop on a yeah. quick call and get that face-to-face -face interaction make sure I really understand their question. And a lot of times I'm protecting my time because we can get to the heart of the problem exactly. sooner. So in some weird way, it's a, it's a win-win. Well, you can ask why, why, again, going back to that, like you can ask yeah. them, why are they asking that question? And it just, it helps, it helps with that a lot. And I think 
I think one thing that I've noticed is that people sometimes are so hesitant to get on the phone. And I think that's, it's incredibly important. I find even with working with my team, sometimes it's better to just call someone for five minutes than going back and forth over email for four hours with time delay between stuff. So being able to be confident and have that relationship with your prospect or customer, just pick up the phone is incredibly valuable. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Well, Kat, this, this has been incredibly helpful. Like some of the insights you've shared and the perspective you've brought to the table around what really makes a strong SE and how do you measure them? How do you grow these qualities? How do you, um, how can good SEs up level and become great SEs? This was super, super helpful. Thank you so much for sharing. Of uh, we're course, gonna, this is awesome. Yeah, switch gears now to the, the rapid fire four questions. Okay. Four questions we're gonna ask to every guest and I, I love these questions and I think they're, it's really great because everyone's gonna be able to, to take these and you know, learn from them. So what book has greatly influenced your personal or professional life? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually just read this book um, before SKO, but it's called Extreme Ownership. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it before. I didn't necessarily care as much for the detailed stuff of what actually happened um, as overseas, but I did find that all of the principles that they had were incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to if you don't believe it yourself, there's no way that you can get anyone else to believe it as well. So I think taking ownership mm-hmm. and believing in it and being able to convey that belief and explain why just it's, I think it's been great from both a management perspective, but you can take it directly to working with your customers as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I've, I haven't read that book, but I have watched a few of Jocko's videos online and, and he sets me straight. <laughs> Every time you watch a video, he, he, you know, you, you, you close that video, you know, ready to take on any task. Yeah. <laughs> ownership. These definitely no excuses. So it's great. Um, so what, what's a profound experience that has shaped your professional life? Oh, um, so one of them comes down to, I was at Good Data and it was when I was in professional services that I found out like a month later, um, that there was a bug in something that I had written that was not saving data correctly. Um, and I think the reason why that was so profound is because it was like one of my sec, it was like the second customer I had ever worked with. So I was already felt a little bit self-conscious about working on the account. Um, but I think the biggest thing with that was, um, honestly, you just, you have to own up to your mistakes. Like you don't blame anyone else. If you own up to it yourself, um, you, again, it goes back to building that trust. You're able to build that trust with the customer and customers, everyone makes mistakes and people know that, but they much prefer that you tell them versus a lying about it. Never lie. That's bad. Um, but B also blaming someone else. Um, it just, it, so instead we, we talked about it, we found a way to, to solve it and to sort of come up with what the proposed solution and workaround was for it. Um, but I mean, it, it sucked. It was hard. I felt awful. Um, but at the same time, at the end of the day, I learned from it because that's the, the main goal is everyone will make mistakes and it's just, what can you, what can you learn from it? So it doesn't happen again. Yeah. yeah. That's really touching on that concept of failure, right? It's okay to make a mistake, yeah. but learn mm-hmm. and grow from it. There's a real human element to that as well, which I love, you know, and, and it helps yeah. not only like all of us connect on kind of that different level because we are all human. We're, we're, we are not perfect. And it's cool because going back to your book and taking extreme ownership, you can yeah. actually build either more rapport or a better relationship with the customer as well. If you come to them with something that you found and, and, with a solution, which is great too. Yeah. So. 
I really like that. The last two questions that we had was, what is your worst professional advice you've ever been given? Mm -hmm. And if it's SE specific, that'd be great as well. Yeah. So I think, um, and it's interesting because like it almost seems counterintuitive, but um, I think the worst advice I've been given is that you need to sell the product vision. And the reason I say that is because there's a fine line between selling what doesn't exist and selling sort of where we might be in a month or two. So um, you, it, and a lot of it comes down to just sort of setting the right expectations with your prospect and customer. Like if you're, if you're selling something that's not going to be ready for a year, no one's going to be happy when they sign the deal and they're like, so when do I get this feature? Whatever it might be. Um, and it's, it's all about setting the right expectations. So I think that's one thing is it sounds like it's a great advice of like, you need to sell the vision of where the product is going to be, but you've got to be very careful on what you actually do with that and making it sort of realistic and you set the right expectations of your customer. How do you strike that balance of, yes, this is where our product is going in the future, but yet not selling uh, products or features that potentially aren't there? It's, it's challenging. I think one of the easiest ways to do it is sort of talk about it in terms of where we want to be in the next year or two years and think about it as a high level. So I think about Snowflake right now and sort of what we're trying to do. Um, we just, um, our big thing this past year is we've sort of rebranded ourselves from a cloud data warehouse to cloud data platform. And a large portion of that is because our customers have been doing more than just data warehousing on our platform ever since they started working with us. So we've embraced that and have sort of used that as our own messaging as we move forward. So it's no longer just analysts, it's data engineers and data scientists are being able to get access to the data and do what they need to do. Um, so we talk about it from sort of the vision of where we're trying to go. Um, but at the same time, if there's things that we can't do today, you just need to be upfront about it. Just saying that this is where we're trying to get to. We're not there yet. We don't support this exact workload. So it's, it's honestly, it comes down to you have to be truthful when they ask those questions. Yeah, truthful and, and setting the right expectations. So a year exactly. from now, if the customer comes to you and they're like, hey, Kat, where's this this product or feature? You're like, the, the expectations were set up front. So yeah, yep, I like exactly. that a lot. The last of the rapid fire questions that we had was the opposite of the question I just asked. Mm -hmm. So what's the best professional advice that you've been given? And SE specific, if you can. Uh, don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that's the 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 best one. I think <clears throat> as engineers, in a lot of cases, we want to be able to solve everything ourselves and we put the weight of the world on our own shoulders. But um, in most organizations, and I know it's Snowflake, we there are other teams that are there to help carry that burden. Um, we have field CTOs, we have field chief security officers, we have a support team, we have a product team, we have all of these different resources that if you don't know how to answer a question or if you can't solve that, ask other people, uh, ask someone who's been here for four years. Um, mm -hmm. Just, I think one of the biggest things is you don't, there's a fine balance between floundering around a little bit so that you can get to the right answer. Like maybe it's in documentation, things like that. But the, there's also, you're spending multiple days trying to solve something when someone else has the answer that you could just ask for. So again, it's, some of it comes to pride. Some people don't want to be willing to admit that they don't know the answer to something. Um, but I think that the best people and the best SEs as well, too, is they know when to ask for help and they know who to ask for help. 
Wow. Yeah, that is great advice. Uh, I really love that advice. And, and I know I've personally found myself in those situations all the time. Everything you said really resonated. <laughs> you know, as an engineer, you want to be able to solve your own problems. But sometimes you're getting asked questions that not even your most senior engineers are able to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, well, thank you so much for, for joining us today and sharing your perspective. Do you have any closing remarks that we haven't talked about that you'd like to add? I mean, I think the, the one selfish plug I have is I'm hiring SE in the Bay Area. For <laughs> um, we work with some amazing customers and we work on an amazing product. So if you're interested, please find me on LinkedIn. And I've worked with Kat before in the past as well. She is awesome to work with and for. So definitely reached out to her over LinkedIn. Awesome. This is an awesome experience and a great conversation. Awesome. All right. All right. Thanks, Kat. Wow. What an incredible conversation that was with Kat. We really dissected the core qualities of a great sales engineer. This conversation truly was a window into the mindset of an incredible sales engineering leader at Snowflake one of the world's most successful startups. Again, Kat and other sales engineering leaders are hiring. So if you're curious or looking for a sales engineering role, definitely reach out to her on LinkedIn or visit their careers page. Thanks again for listening. We really appreciate you and we hope this helps you learn and grow in your career as a sales engineer and in your professional life. If you found this conversation as insightful as we did, please share the podcast with a teammate or your team and let us know what you think by subscribing and rating wherever you listen. Finally, if there are any topics you'd like to hear about or speakers you think would be great for the podcast, please use this email alias in the show notes to reach out to us. See you next time on the edge of sales engineering.